New game day shirt? Boom. Cash back. Food for the tailgate? Boom. Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Soccer Show Weekend Review! The Premier League is back! And how did it begin? As you'd expect, with a Man City win. Super Sunday saw Chelsea and Liverpool spar, and some very angry bandage removal from Mo Salah. Big Ange is here, and Luton looked alright, and Roy Hodgson nearly had himself a fight! So, it's a new campaign full of intrigue, and for now, we're still remembering to set a lineup in our fantasy league. Meanwhile, Harry Kane's move to Bavaria might be hard to bear. Have they just cursed themselves to win no more silverware? And La Liga and Ligue 1 have also started, even if PSG are looking a little half-hearted. My name's Ryan Bailey, joining me today, a man who's full of hope and optimism of another wonderful Man United season, in which the club may or may not be bought by Qatari's Taylor Rockwell. Howdy doody. Yeah, the more things change, my friend. Uh, When last we saw Manchester United, things were maybe looking up and maybe the club was going to be sold. And at time of recording, things are maybe looking up and maybe the club is going to be sold. Mm. Well, as we record, Manchester United have not begun their campaign against Wolves, uh, so let's reserve judgment on this team, shall we, until maybe tomorrow, huh? Yeah. I mean, I feel like we can judge, but yeah, sure, larger judgment, (laughs) larger judgment is probably best reserved until results have actually happened. Wise indeed. Joining (laughs) us, Taylor, the chairman of the Big Ange Postacoglu fan club, it's Graham Flamin' Ruffin. Hello, Ryan Bailey. I told you all this is going to be fun. Spurs are going to be good to watch this season. I promise you they're not going to let you down this time. Um... (laughs) <laughs> really? <laughs> Caveat, not necessarily in terms of results. <laughs> okay, well, okay, well, that's something at least. It will be entertaining uh, uh, in one way or another, I suppose, Graham. We're looking forward to that and learning more about Tottenham's uh, debut performance under Big Ange, but not before we introduce a man who can't wait to talk about historic season we've got happening right now. A historic season of the League's Cup, that is. Joe Lowry, hello. Let's go. I know we'll talk mostly about the Premier League. I am going to do my best uh, work to convince all of you that these remaining League's Cup games are going to be worth watching. They've been wild. We'll talk more about some of the things that have made this tournament wild later on. But I believe the semifinals are coming up tomorrow and the finals are the final, I should say, at some point later this week. All that to say, even if I don't know the schedule, the tournament's been really, really good, even if Leo Messi wasn't in it. Indeed. I have the schedule written down, Joe. We'll get to it later. Cliffhanger. Mm, Drama. There you go. Keep the people listening. There we go. Very good. (laughs) We have plenty to get to in this show, of course, with the start of the Premier League and start of several other European leagues. Before we get there, though, uh, perhaps a little bit of transfer business we should talk about up top. Uh, Just saw, as we recall, that Neymar apparently going to Al-Hilal for around £86 million, which is, what, about $100 million or something, Graham? That sounds uh, cool, 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 cool. Yeah. 
that transfer just I'm just shocked this hadn't already happened it just felt like the most nailed on <laughs> big statement Saudi Pro League signing of all time Neymar to Saudi Arabia also Al Halal are paying 90 million euro. what was the number you said there Ryan 80, 86, 86 million pounds but I don't know what that is in right. other so currencies that, yeah that must be close to 90 million euros um, it seemed like PSG just wanted him off the wage bill so that is some good business by Al Halal there it feels like maybe they could have got him for free PSG might have flown him there complimentary as part of the deal maybe so Lucho's plan to pass the ball 5,000 times per game maybe it uh, didn't suit Neymar's style of play so they are looking to offload him as you that's say. why Saint Usman Dembele famously uh, <laughs> loves that style of play great fit there PSG Yes, indeed. Meanwhile, Taylor, we had quite a big uh, transfer deal erupt over the weekend. As listener will no doubt be aware, Harry Kane is now Bayern Munich player. Just around 12 hours after being announced, he made his debut as a substitute in the German Super Cup. We'll get to that game later, but a big, big deal for Germany and for Spurs as well. Yeah, it it felt weird to watch Tottenham uh, this weekend and not see Harry Kane there. It felt odd, but I also think it's exciting for a number of different reasons. I'm sure Spurs fans will be unhappy, and I I did sort of enjoy the uh, he's one of our own chants that we've had for many seasons now. The idea of a player coming through and staying with their club seems like a thing that we're going to get less and less of as time goes on. And I understand why Harry Kane wanted to move. I also understand why Spurs needed to let him go as things stood and I and I honestly my hot take is that I think this is better for them at least in the medium term uh, because I think it takes a lot of pressure off there's an immediate de-escalation of expectations when you lose a player like Harry Kane it's kind of why I didn't want Harry Harry Kane to sign for Manchester United for the inverse reason of the immediate hype and expectation that comes with it I feel like you can now spin this as Postacoglu doesn't have Harry Kane he probably would have thought there was a chance he was going to manage Harry Kane when he moves to Tottenham and now it's all what are they going to do how do they kind of improve without him and it's the Bill Simmons Ewing theory of when you lose that key player does it make you worse or does it sort of rally everyone and create opportunity for other players I feel like it might do that and then I think Harry Kane is going to be happy at Bayern Munich I think they will probably be just fine with him scoring goals so I think this is a move that could potentially work out for everyone involved unlike the Neymar situation which I don't see ending well for many different people. I think this is a no-brainer for Bayern Munich, right? You go out and you yeah. find who is basically your Robert Lewandowski replacement after you spend a season without anybody really in that role. Bayern, and maybe we'll talk briefly about their lost RB Leipzig later on in the show, Bayern are a team that need more thrust. Like, they, they just need more. They have not looked like the same Bayern team that we have come to know and not love, but maybe fear, like the rest of Germany. They've not become that team. They haven't been that team under Thomas Tuchel. Like, they kept... The, the Bundesliga title race down to the wire last year, just narrowly snuck past Dortmund. They come out and they don't look particularly dangerous against Leipzig. With Harry Kane on the bench, they need a focal point. They need some more attacking talent, and they have plenty of quality. And I do expect this Bayern team to win the Bundesliga and to make a, an impressive Champions League run. But I'm not sure how deep of a Champions League run they were going to be able to make without a Harry Kane-like figure. So I think it's massive for them that they get Kane He is one of, if not the best number nine in the world right now. He makes them better in a heartbeat. Taylor, I am significantly less optimistic about Tottenham than you are, not because I don't think they could improve over where they are now without Harry Kane in the medium term, but there's just no other way for me to spin this other than they are not as good of a team today as they Mm -hmm. were three days ago, right? Like they are just not. I know Richarlison tattoo and all is a dangerous option up front. I like his (laughs) game a lot. We saw how good he can be at the World Cup for Brazil. They just lost their best player. And, and again, 
probably the best number nine in the world right now. Even if you find a replacement who you feel really good about, odds are they're not going to be as good as Harry Kane. I think it's, it's, it's not a great situation for Tottenham right now. You look at their squad, and I get, yes, fun soccer, and I love that, and I think Pachacago is going to do a lot of fun things with this team, but I get real, like, seventh place is our ceiling vibes from this Tottenham team right now. Yeah. Yeah, just a quick clarification. I don't think they're going to be better, but I think it lets them have a little more breathing room. This Their draw with Brentford this weekend, if Harry Kane is starting that, I think I at least am automatically like, oh, that's that's two points dropped with Harry Kane in there. you got to be winning that game. Without him in there, I'm sort of like, oh, like they found a way to draw against a good Brentford team that could go places this season. They're figuring things out. Like, I think I just immediately have... The bar's have... been lowered. It's kind exactly. of what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think in that way, it helps Ange Postacoglu and a lot of that yes. Tottenham team yeah. find their footing. That's, that's true. And Graham, sorry. One, one, one thing. That's totally that's true. Not, just keep talking. It's <laughs> just, fine. I mean, Graham's talking funny. Graham's talking um, funny. That's totally fair. I guess if I'm a Tottenham fan, that's not what I want to hear. Right? And, and so I just want to be sensitive because I feel like we throw out a lot of yeah. shots and I know there's a Tottenham contingent in the Discord. Um, I'm sorry, and I, I wish that the bar hadn't been lowered on you all, but Taylor's right. It, it, unfortunately, it has, and it's in a worse spot for Spurs than it was just a few days ago. This is like some sort of cruel trick where last season, whenever I mentioned Ange Postacoglu, like Ryan was timing me to go, come on, Graham, let's move on. Now he's moved to the Premier League and like, I can't get a word in. Let me talk about Ange Postacoglu. Um, yeah, I think both of you are, are, are kind of right. I think... Uh, Joe, you're saying this team's not going to be as good in the immediate term. That's that's correct. Taylor, what I think you're getting at is Kane leaving helps Spurs make a quicker transition into becoming a true Postacoglu team. He wants forwards who can press and stretch the pitch and get in behind. And, and that isn't really Kane. Now, Kane isn't Cristiano Ronaldo. I think his skill set would allow him to adapt and he would have integrated in a certain way. So I think Spurs will feel pain in the short term. It's a real indictment of the way they've been managed in recent years that they were never, never able to take the next step with one of the best strikers in the world in their team. But I think you could argue that this transfer kind of suits all parties in some way. Spurs are at, are at the beginning of a, of a rebuild. And so there is a disconnect if they have arguably the best centre forward in the world in the middle of that team, in the middle of a rebuild, which kind of... Um, warps expectations, which is, the, I think, what is what you were referring to there, Taylor. Graham, do you think uh, Big Ange is in a hurry to spend some of that sweet, sweet Harry Kane money to do that rebuild in the next uh, three weeks or so? They will surely move to bring in another centre forward, right? So I think Postacoglu quite likes what Richarlison gives Spurs. And Richarlison last season under Conte was playing in wide positions and playing as a secondary striker. And I've I've never felt that that is his position. I think he is a centre forward. I remember when Richarlison was playing at the World Cup for Brazil six months ago in Qatar, and I, I, I was quite glowing about what he offered that team. So I don't think it's out of the question that he is... The, the replacement, I just think he's going to perform that role in a very different way. I think, and this might be a rudimentary point, Spurs need to inject some goals into that team, right? So if it's a, if it, it might be a wide player, someone that they can count on to get 15, 20 goals a season, that might be where they add those goals rather than in, in the form of a centre forward. But there are some challenges, certainly, that this Kane transfer presents. I am just looking forward to seeing how Postacoglu solves them, having seen him in Scotland for two years. He has a... He is a quite an imaginative thinker. He thinks outside the box. He's he's quite willing to go to other markets as well. I think they've already been to Argentina to sign a, a striker that I personally hadn't heard of before. Uh, Mickey van der Ven, who was very good in this game against Brentford, was a player that I wasn't familiar with either. So I am interested to see new players at Spurs and new ideas. Wonderful stuff. We'll be talking about Spurs and Bayern Munich a little later on. Before we do, though, Taylor, another deal which uh, appears to be 
happening as we record. Moises Caicedo, uh, a, a reported £115 million move from Brighton to Chelsea it is now, after ha- Liverpool having accepted an £111 million offer from him last th- for him last Thursday. Um, this made the Chelsea-Liverpool game this weekend a little spicy, the Caicedo derby, if you will, but it looks like Chelsea are the team who will be uh, improving their midfield as opposed to Liverpool, who might have needed it more. For- First of all, just to jump in, are we sure that Moises Caicedo isn't actually Ryan Bailey? He was like, he heard that an offer had been accepted from Liverpool. Where's Liverpool? And all oh, right, in the north? No, I'm not going there. No, I, staying in the south. Of I course. did advise him. I advised him on it. Great. Of course, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. With that in mind, Ryan, I really appreciate your lucrative setup to this conversation, but uh, I feel like I've given my heart and my word <laughs> to just discussing the games from this weekend, so I don't really feel like I can properly discuss this, other than to say. <laughs> Uh, as a person who was not involved, or the club that I support was not involved, really enjoyed this one. Because it feels like this is a thing that Manchester United often find themselves in the middle of, of wanting a player who doesn't seem to want to go there. And I I, I will admit I sort of uh, enjoyed that it was Liverpool and Chelsea involved in this one back and forth. Uh, Chelsea, once again, proving that they're willing to spend an insane amount of money and offer a ridiculously long deal that I thought they weren't allowed to offer anymore, but somehow they are. Uh, and I think with that, they're bringing in a player that will make their midfield better. So it's shades of Enzo Fernandez, which based on this weekend's performance worked out just fine. So congratulations to Chelsea, commiserations to Liverpool on a final note, because we talked about them and I was more down on them, I think, than, than some of the other people on the pod, largely because it didn't feel like they had fully strengthened the midfield with the number of departures they've had. And the, idea that Caicedo was joining, I was instantly like, okay, now they're maybe challenging like City again. Now they're back in that top three, top four conversation to me. And and so to go, I'm sure Liverpool fans felt the same. So to go from, oh, here we go, another statement midfield signing, we're getting better and stronger, to the situation as it is, has to be a bit of a hit to the ego. Uh, but it does make that rivalry all the stronger, and I'm excited for it. Yeah, first of all, poor Tyler Adams, uh, yeah. because in the space of a week we went from Tyler Adams is going to Chelsea for 20 million euros to Chelsea spending 170 million pounds on not only Moises Caicedo but it seems like they're going to get Romeo Lavia as well that was the reporting last night was that not only content with getting one of their two midfield targets they're going to go and spend 60 million pounds on, on Lavia who was Liverpool's second choice it feels like Chelsea are just copying Liverpool's homework at, at, at this point um, Caicedo is a great player he will improve Chelsea that price is absolutely wild I, I think he's a better fit for Chelsea than Liverpool because, and we could talk about Liverpool a bit more when, when we speak about the game that happened between these two teams um, at the weekend. I think Liverpool need a true midfield anchor, whereas Caicedo, in my mind, and look, we don't have a, a huge amount of evidence on Caicedo. He's only played one Premier League season. He was at the World Cup for Ecuador. They only played, what was it, three or four games at that tournament. But in my mind, he's a bit more of a two-way player than that and Chelsea do need that sort of player for the double pivot they need that player alongside Enzo Fernandez and we're call it Conor Gallagher if Enzo Fernandez is going to be pushed further forward but yeah what what a price Chelsea now have a 220 million pound midfield pairing between Caicedo and Fernandez and between the two of them I think they played 160 league senior league games but it's just it's just wild one more thing from me on this uh just real quick Ecuador that's it yes oh. Joe that was real quick. Thank you very much, Joe. You're welcome. Um, so Chelsea won, Liverpool won is a game we'll be discussing right after you don't press the plus 30 button and stick with us back shortly. New game day shirt, boom, cash back. Food for the tailgate, boom, cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes... 
I said, debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Did you know that even if you have a 401k for retirement, you can still have an IRA? Robinhood has the only IRA that gives you a 3% boost on every dollar you contribute when you subscribe to Robinhood Gold. But get this, now through April 30th, Robinhood is even boosting every single dollar you transfer in from another retirement account with a 3% match. That's right, no cap on the 3% match. Robinhood Gold gets you the most for your retirement thanks to their IRA with a 3% match. This offer is good through April 30th. Get started at Robinhood.com slash boost. Subscription fees apply. And now for some legal info. Claim as of Q1 2024 validated by Radius Global Market Research. Investing involves risk including loss. Limitations apply to IRAs and 401ks. 3% match requires Robinhood Gold for one year from the date of first 3% match. Must keep Robinhood IRA for five years. The 3% matching on transfers is subject to special terms and conditions. Robinhood IRA available to U.S. customers in good standing. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker. Dealer. Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. We are back. Chelsea 1, Liverpool 1. A very entertaining deadlock this was. Joseph Lowry at Stamford Bridge. Axel Desazi and Mo Salah with the goals. Some good attacking quality on both yeah. sides on display here. Lots of offside goals and Timo Werner wasn't even there. Amazing. <laughs> good stuff, right? I, I thought you'd wait until we got to the Leipzig game to toss in the Timo Werner slander. Props to you for getting it done much earlier on in the show. Gotta love the B block. Um, I really enjoyed this game. I enjoyed especially the approaches. This is not a lineup I expected from Chelsea. It's not really an alignment of players we saw much from them at all in preseason. Nicholas Jackson, I thought was a really fun addition to this team as a hardworking, hard-running player that I hadn't seen much of coming into this game. But really when the lineups dropped, and even in the early stages of this game, my eyes were drawn to Liverpool. Right, We'd had discussions about what is this team right now without their Fabinho replacement? And the answer is they're just kind of pedal to the metal, at least when it comes to the, the lineup choices from Jurgen Klopp. He didn't go with a number six in this game. He went with Alexis McAllister, new signing from Brighton, basically adds the number six, even though he's wearing the number 10 shirt. And in reality, he's probably more of a number eight or like a, a tucked in winger half space player than anything else. He was the, the deeper player. It was Dominic Soboslai as the, the right-sided number eight and Cody Gakpo as the left-sided number eight with uh, Diego Jota as Diogo Jota, excuse me, as the nine, Mosala and Luis Diaz in the front line. They were not playing around Liverpool in this game. Now, I still don't think the attack, it's week one. So just to be clear, everybody, let's, let's take a breath. It's week one. I don't think the attack was truly clicking for them in this game. And maybe that looks a little different if, if an offside goal is brought back. But you can see just how much firepower is there. Like that Mo Salah pass for the Luis Diaz goal is absolutely unreal. And it comes from a nice bit of possession play from Liverpool as well. You've got Trent Alexander-Arnold at times rotating inside. Sobaslai tucking wide or Salah tucking wide and Sobaslai staying in the half spaces. Just a lot of fun tactical rotation possession stuff from Liverpool. Even if I think there are hopefully for, for fans of Liverpool another couple of gears for them to hit. Yeah. Uh, Graham, what did you make of this one? It did seem that Liverpool, we, we expected they might be a bit vulnerable 
in defence with uh, McAllister at that number six role. Had to rely on Allison quite a few times, who was excellent in this game. What what do we make of them? Yeah, I think Liverpool certainly started the better of the two teams. And when Salah scores the, the disallowed goal to make it 2-0, I did think there was a chance that Chelsea would just be blown away. At that point, the, the box midfield, because Trent Alexander-Arnold was also coming centrally into, into those midfield areas, he plays the pass through... A th- is it him that plays the pass through for Salah for the, the disallowed goal? I think it is. He's an essential area at that point. That seemed to be working relatively well, and they were cutting through Chelsea at, at, at ease, really. The energy was very high. They had a unit of six players pushing high and, and closing down well. They were putting Chelsea under pressure. Um, they, they were the, the, the execution was lacking once or twice, like when Gakpo passes to Salah who actually manages to hit the bar in that moment, but the momentum of the move kind of dies at, at, at that point. And so there were a couple times when I felt like if runs had been timed a little bit better, I think Salah could have held his run for the disallowed goal. It is close, but there is a lot of space for him to get into in that point. It didn't need to be that well-timed. But the disallowed goal, seemed to the match seemed to pivot on that disallowed goal, and Chelsea were a lot better after that moment. And by full-time, I was more impressed by Chelsea than I was by Liverpool. Um, there was a bit of confusion over the shape that Chelsea played. It did look like a back three with wingbacks, but then Pochettino was asked about this after the match, and he insisted that it was a back four with with Chilwell as a, as a left midfielder. I guess it doesn't really matter. These things are fluid in and out of, of, of possession, but it was, it was interesting nonetheless because it underlined just how important Chilwell is to this Chelsea team. Um, and if you looked at his heat map, he was extremely advanced, and I guess that's where Pochettino was making the point that he wasn't defensive in any sense. I saw match the day highlight that him and Nicholas Jackson made the most off-the-ball runs of anyone, which tells you something about his focus in this game. He did have a role of out of possession to come inside and get close to Alexander-Arnold as well. And I mentioned in our little preseason recap, not to give myself too much credit, but that Chilwell had been playing very well and I think he sees him as more than just a, a fullback so I think he will be used in a number of different ways and he did give Liverpool a lot to think about in this match that's really fascinating because I had a hard time working this one out I just assumed back four and then kept looking at it and realizing like oh they're kind of in a back five but then Chilwell is playing as like a left wing back who's also a left-sided central midfielder that positioning really confused me so I'm glad there's clarification there where would you say like Graham if you were giving a very straightforward uh listing of the formation which I know is like automatically a problem for cough cough Joe Lowry what what, (laughs) was this like a four two chill well two one like I don't I don't know how I would classify it because it's so odd to see him on the left with not no one really balancing on the right just before Graham jumps in, I will say that there was, I think it was the Guardian report who said the average positions were 3-1-5-1, which doesn't help anybody in answering that question. But obviously, you've got Bruce James and Chilwell in those wide midfield positions, Graham. Yeah, so I'm looking at the who scored graph here, and I think who scored, um, I've done a bit of work for who scored, they take the average positions, and I think that's how they plot. They have an algorithm that essentially plots the formation. So they've got it as a 3-4-2-1 um, with Chilwell as the, le- the left-sided wing-back, Rhys James on the other side. But there was fluid- fluidity where Chilwell was just an out-and-out. If you look at his individual heat map, he's well over the halfway line. Um, so I don't think you could ever really call him a left-back in a, in a back four. Levi Caldwell was coming was coming over to that left side, and then you had Rhys James slotting back to create that, 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 um, that four, and then Sterling dropping back a little bit as well, and Enzo Fernandez pushing up. So th- it was all very fluid, which is, which is potch ball, right? That's what he does. And actually, that was one thing that crossed my mind was we've spoken a lot about how Pochettino, Pochettino will change Chelsea 
this season. And one thing that I'd maybe underappreciated was how good he has been for fullbacks in his career. So at Spurs, players like Kyle Walker, Kieran Trippier, Danny Rose have all been at their best under Pochettino. Under Pochettino. They all thrived under him at Spurs. And Chelsea have two of the best fullbacks around in Chelwell and Rhys James. So I do think we're going to see... I do kind of wonder for England if they're absolutely knackered by the time we get to the Euros because they're going to play a lot of minutes and a lot of games for this Chelsea team. But it didn't surprise me that the first game of the season, Chelwell and even Rhys James on the other side were such an important part of what Chelsea did here. And it would really be devastating for Graham if England's fullbacks were tired oh, and not able to play all that well. Graham would be so sad, so sad. Uh, I will. I will note... Uh, if Pochettino is particularly good for fullbacks, I'm guessing he is also going to be having a word with Reese James because for the opening goal for Liverpool, watching it on the wide angle, Reese James is the one who's responsible for tracking Luis Diaz and just doesn't. And if you watch it, like he sees Diaz, he sees the play developing and he never gets out of second gear even. Like it's it's a jog from Reese James all the way back. And then when Diaz scores, it's not even the like fake arms, like who's supposed to mark him. It's just like, oh, that happened, and he turns around and walks away. And, and I can't imagine that is the attention to detail that Mauricio Pochettino would be demanding, looking for. So yeah. I, I imagine we'll continue to see Reese James play there and develop. But that was a, a negative moment, I think, if you're looking at how Chelsea want to be able to uh, transition to defense. I wonder if that's any other player besides Mohamed Salah, whether James gets in quicker. Because if and Sa- if Fair. Salah has the ball in that position and yeah. you're looking at the phase of the attack there, you think, well, I know exactly what's going to happen here. Salah's going to get close to his man. He's going to quicken it up. He's going to shift onto his left foot. And he's going to get a curling shot away at goal. That's what Sal- Salah does. But no, not in this situation. He didn't. He threads the pass through and that is, James is made to look a little bit silly. That's wild, Graham, because that is almost certainly what happened, is that he was just like, ah, there's no point. There's going to be a shot. I don't need to do it. Oh, no, my guy scored. Uh-oh, that's not good. I'm probably going to hear about that when we watch the tape back. Uh, Joe, before the season started, I think we could all agree that Chelsea were the biggest unknown quantity of this Premier League season to predict what they like. Have we learned much from this game? Obviously, we had a few good performances. Enzo looked good. Conor Gallagher looked pretty good, I thought. And those wide players, Reese James and Chilwell, doing their full forward rather than full back thing was pretty good, uh, except for that moment that Taylor mentioned, although the, not the worst thing a James sibling has done in the last couple of weeks, I would suggest. Uh, but Joe, <laughs> any, uh, any, any uh, thoughts on what we may have learned about Chelsea and where they might do in the rankings based on this? I think we learned a little bit about what Enzo Fernandez can do. And, and we've seen this before. Right? We saw it in Portugal. We saw it at the World Cup. The end of last season, though, after he joins was just so weird for Chelsea, right? They're in this downward spiral week after week after week, and it felt like it was really hard to get any real context and new information about the team to close out the season. So to have Enzo Fernandez come in and be so comfortable on the ball, which again, not a surprise, but to see it with Chelsea was kind of something new in this more stable environment. To see him be so comfortable on the ball, to be see him so comfortable when it comes to both uh, distribution and his ability to drive forward in possession to see that was huge, right? And I think about partnering him with Moises Caicedo, and that should be scary for genuinely every single team in Europe, not just in the Premier League, but in Europe, period, over the next couple of seasons, what, the next decade and a half, right? It's going to be based off of a contract. So that's one thing. But other than that, Ryan, truthfully, I don't think we learned a whole lot about Chelsea. Yes, there's some of the tactical intricacies that Graham and Taylor have talked about well. I saw just a toss in my two cents on this. I saw Chilwell defending as a left-sided midfielder, oftentimes in a 4-4-2, and then he would be slightly more advanced on one side than Reese James would be on the other side. Soccer is fluid. Pochettino probably yeah. just throwing a nice little wrench in things in post-match press conferences, and that's okay. I didn't really see a ton still from Chelsea that makes me feel like, yes, this team 
is going to finish in this place. To me, they're still they're stealing with an elite midfield and, and maybe Mudrick becoming the player that they, they paid for him to be. Their ceiling is probably still as a fringe Champions League level team. And their forwards probably still like seventh or eighth. I think they're right in that zone. And I'm not sure I feel particularly convicted that they should go above or below that zone based off of this performance. My point of reference for a new manager taking over will always be Jurgen Klopp taking over Liverpool and how the first week you can see moments where there are players pressing in packs and you can start to see as the weeks go on more of the sort of hallmarks of his style taking root at Liverpool and how the team sort of gradually keeps increasing in their performance until they're eventually the team that they are. Uh, in this game, I feel like you could see those little moments of like potch ball, as I understood it from at least Tottenham, uh, on display here. And that's where I thought Jackson was really strong in the way he was utilized. Like I saw him doing a lot of Harry Kane things. I saw him dropping in to like to link up the play through the middle at times but I also saw him being a player who would make those sort of diagonal runs into the half spaces to receive direct passes and hold up sometimes trying to take it to the defenders sometimes looking for overlapping runs um it felt to me like Raheem Sterling was in a position where he is much more comfortable it looked more to me like a Youngman Song uh Song kind of role where he is moving inside sometimes tracking back defensively but then has a lot of license in where he wants to attack and how he wants to attack and I thought this was the best I've seen Sterling look since maybe his Man City days uh, and then I would add that the way he used Gallagher and Enzo Fernandez was really interesting to me because I, I routinely saw Connor Gallagher dropping the deepest when Chelsea were trying to build out from the back and Sometimes he would get the ball, and that would almost always go outside to one of the like the the Ben Chilwells uh, or one of the one of the fullbacks or wingbacks. Uh, but but it wasn't a lot of like turning and playing under pressure from Connor Gallagher. That felt like it was Enzo Fernandez's purview. And in that regard, I thought it made a lot of sense that you you play the ball into Gallagher. He's not really going to muck about. He's not going to try to do anything too fancy. But it allows Enzo Fernandez to sort of hunt for space. Mm. And then I think he is so good with just a little bit of time. Yes. There's moments when it's played into his feet and he receives on the turn and plays forward with his first touch. One I don't motion. know how you can. Yeah. I don't know how you do that, but he does it so routinely of like receiving and turning and passing all in one touch that is wild to me but then also at times he will turn and then cut back and paying a 40 yard ball out wide diagonally to start an attack and I think the way they were building out I think was had a lot of different looks at different points and that all to me uh within the context of being sort of pre-programmed and how you want to get the ball into attackers in the spaces where they receive it that all felt like potch ball starting to take root or having already taken root yeah, this was the best I've seen Enzo Fernandez play for Chelsea. And I, I actually thought he was pretty decent in, in the second half of last season. Obviously, it was a low bar ac across the board at Chelsea. Um, obviously, I don't think he went any, anywhere close to justifying his fee. But this was a real demonstration of what he can offer you in a, in a more advanced role. If I were to pinpoint where I think this was better from Chelsea, it was just a general sense of Chelsea's attackers having more space to work in than at any other point in about three seasons. Even when they were successful under Tuchel, that wasn't really a hallmark of, of, of how they, they played. As you say, Taylor, Ryan Sterling had a good game, the best I've seen of him maybe in a Chelsea shirt as well. Mm -hmm. Nicholas Jackson, really impressed with, with him. His entire game, um, or a lot of his game, is about playing on the shoulder and, and, and getting in behind. And when he does get in behind, I was really impressed with how he just continues to drive. There's a chance in the second half where another player might have 
checked back and looked for a teammate, but he just continues to keep going into the box and forces Alisson into a save. And yes, of course, it might be a game state thing where Liverpool's high line allows you to play that way. But the last four games between these teams had been goalless. It wasn't like Chelsea were having a lot of joy getting in behind Liverpool previously. And so I saw an improvement in that regard. Obviously, it's just one game. I also have a feeling that with both of these teams, we will look back at the lineups from this match at the end of the season and laugh to ourselves. I think it feels like a lot is going to change, whether it's in central midfield. Both these teams clearly need... That was one of my biggest takeaways from this match was how badly both these teams do need those defensive midfielders. It was a joy to watch at times. It was chaotic at times. But it was very, very easy for both teams to play through the middle and get into the attacking third. And if you look at Liverpool on paper, and Joe and I outlined this earlier... A midfield box of Gakpo, McAllister, Schoberslai and Alexander-Arnold, if we're counting him as well, that is pretty wild. And I'm just not convinced that over the course of a whole season that is going to work. They are missing a very clear type of player. And so, as I say, I think both these teams are a bit of a work in progress and things will shift pretty quickly over the coming weeks and months. All right, good stuff. Let's take a little look around the rest of the Premier League action on Friday. The league kicked off with Man City with a 3-0 win over Burnley. Graham, I was I was into this game until I wasn't, I suppose. Does that make sense? Until Haaland scored four yeah. minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> <It wasn't laughs> he, is, he, is, he is just... He's just a joke, isn't he? I mean, his finish for the second goal, backtracking away from goal, firing it in off the underside of the bar was just insane. And I think the scary thing about Haaland is he set a new record for goals in a single Premier League season last season. I think it's entirely possible he breaks his own record again this season. There was obviously that period of integration last season and we were talking about him being disconnected and we were thinking about his role in possession. I don't think there's going to be that period now. I think City are generally, even though they've lost Gundogan and Mares, I think they're generally in a better place than they were. 12 months ago, City were clearly the better team here, and by full time it was just a, a complete non-event. Um, I don't think we learned much about Burnley from this per- performance, other than this is a different Burnley to the one we saw in the Premier, Premier League last time. They actually want the ball generally proactive in their play. There was a period in the, in the, in the, in the first half when they were competitive, and Pep Guardiola seemed a little bit unhappy with... Erling Haaland at halftime. I don't know if anyone caught yeah. that, pushing the TV cameras away as he berated him for some min- minuscule issue, I presume. Um, yeah. Classic Pep Guardiola. But yeah, City clearly the better team here and deserved the win. Yeah, it's 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 funny. We'll spend a lot of time, as we should, talking throughout this year about how Chelsea will improve and Liverpool will improve and what Arsenal are, are trying to do and Manchester United and Newcastle, all of these teams. It, it does feel like this is City's to lose, doesn't it? Because they have one thing that none of these other teams have. It's what Graham just talked about. It's Erling Holland, right? He is still the biggest X factor in any league on the planet right now. It's like if, if you take Erling Holland out of this city team and put in, I don't know, let's pick Nicholas Jackson. All of a sudden, it starts to feel like there's maybe a little bit more parity, but that's not what's happened for City. And even if you do take him out, they still have probably the, the 10 best outfield players on the whole of any team in the league. City are just so good. They can face a low block. In this case, it was mostly a 5-4-1 from Burnley. They can find space or Erling Holland will punish you for making a mistake when you give him a little bit of space. They're just so good. And I'm not sure that this team, Graham, you said 12 months ago, and I think I'd agree that City, now that Holland's already been integrated for a year, are better off now than they were a year ago. But I don't know for sure that this team is better off on the whole than they were after winning that Champions League, as an example. But, I mean, the quality is still very, very real, and this title is theirs to lose. 
Uh, Arsenal 2, Nottingham Forest 1 on Saturday, and Ketia and Sucker with the goal. Sucker's goal was a thing of beauty. Uh, Forest uh, were more impressive, Joe, than I thought they would be. Their last two visits to the Emirates were 5-0 losses, both of them. Uh, this one, they got a really nice goal on the counter and had a bit of a late charge. Uh, Joe, what did we learn about uh, Arsenal's shiny new toys, their Declan Rices and their Kai Havertz's and whatnot? It was a fun performance from Arsenal. I don't think they were great in this game, to be honest. They didn't create a lot of clear-cut chances. But once they get those two goals inside the first 32 minutes, and around you mentioned Saka's goal, is just unbelievable. And the assist, right? It's Martinelli who gets the assist right. on Nketiah's goal. I, mean, I don't know what was in the water for players this weekend, but we got Martinelli's assist where he kind of like takes it with the inside of one foot and then back heels it uh, into Nketiah's path. And then Danny Omo kind of like just did that on his own, all in one motion for Leipzig. It was awesome. Arsenal, you know, got the two goals that they needed to in the opening 30, basically, and they didn't have a ton more to do after that. They, they kept it a little nervy at the end, probably nervier than, than their fans would have liked. In terms of the usage of their new stars, though, that's what I thought was the most fun part about this game, other than seeing Matt Turner start against his former team. Well done, Matt, even though you don't win. Yeah, I'm proud of you, as always. It was fun to see Timber basically play as a left-sided center back in possession. It was Declan Rice holding in midfield next to Thomas Partey, who was pinching in from right back in this game, which is not a role that I recall seeing him in last season. And then it was Kai Havertz in the half spaces with Martin Odegaard next to him. And so it was the same 3-2-5 possession shape that we saw from Arsenal for the majority of last season, but it wasn't really achieved in the same way. In the past, it would be Zinchenko maybe tucking inside on the left. Now it was Partey on the right side. You still have Odegaard pushing into the half spaces, but it's not Granit Xhaka across from him in the half spaces anymore. It's Kai Havertz across from him in the half spaces, which I think is a really interesting wrinkle. And then the wingers and Saka and Martinelli stay super wide in possession. That's not new. We saw that all throughout last season under Mikel Arteta. But I really liked the wrinkle of seeing Timber especially as that left-sided defender. Most often he's been in the middle of the back line as a sort of a right-sided center back, a right-sided center back in a three or even a right back. And Arteta's like, nah, we'll use this guy in a different role. He is maybe the most flexible player that Arsenal have, Timber. If folks haven't watched much of him in the past, you'll get to enjoy a lot of what he brings because we're going to see Arteta reach into his bag and pull out a bunch of different looks, even within the same big picture look throughout this season. Joe, that was a really, really interesting. Can you humor me and go through that one more time? So if they're getting into that 3-2-5 possession shape, yeah. but they're doing it differently, it's Thomas Partey moving alongside Declan Rice, and then yep. the back four becomes a back three, so there's your 3-2. Exactly. And so, then, oh, sorry. And then Martinelli and Saka wide, Odegaard Havertz in the half spaces with Nketia, like central doing Nketia things. Yep, yep, you nail it. I don't really need to go through it because you just said it. What would be the Nketiah things? Is he basically doing the Gabriel Jesus role until Jesus comes back? Or do you see him doing anything particularly dynamic or captivating, interesting, whatever it may be? Basically, I mean, I why think... isn't that Balogun? Make it be Balogun. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think for better or worse, Balogun is just third on the depth chart for Arsenal right now. I don't think they see a reality in which he is still a part of this team. So I think Nketiah is the, the number two on the depth chart. He brings a nice mix of skill sets. Like I think we were all pleasantly surprised with what he brought last year when Gabriel Jesus was out injured. He can stretch the line a little bit. He can hold the ball up. He can drop in, although I don't think that's necessarily his strength. He just brings a, a nice mixture of technical ability and athleticism. And he's really good at hunting for space in the box, which is what makes a number nine into a great number nine. I'm not sure if Nketiah will ever truly reach that level, but he's a really good player and he can hold down that number nine spot with ease. Brentford 2, Tottenham 2 elsewhere in London, Taylor. Life after Harry Kane, as we mentioned, and the Big Ange revolution getting underway with a single point here. Uh, James Madison setting up Romero 
uh, with a header for the opener, and Emerson Royale with a lovely little rocket uh, for the second goal for Spurs here. Richarlison, Taylor, the stats tell me, had 16 touches in the first half. Maybe getting used to life in that central role a little bit. That's not good. I did not know that. I, I thought he he looked okay, but I think it is a sign of how things have gone for Richarlison. That me being like, oh, he didn't noticeably do bad things or make horrific decisions or show off his back piece. So that's a positive. Uh, I, I thought this was, was a, a really fun game that I watched knowing the score. And so knowing that it was 2-2 at half, then knowing that it was nil-nil... I was trying to figure out why did things change in the second half. And in the end, I was mostly just captivated by the first. Not surprisingly, where there were four goals. Uh, but, I, but I thought this was Spurs, as I said in the, in the beginning, sort of figuring some things out. And I felt like there were things that were working. And then there were areas of, if not concern, then just you can see how they might run into some problems. Specifically, and, and Graham, I apologize if this is a thing that you've talked about many, many times when talking about Ange Postacoglu, but I was looking for sort of what I would say are identifiers of this first team under him, and it feels like it's going to be a 2-3-5 shape, uh, another sort of 2-3-5, but in this one, it's going to be the two center backs staying as the two center backs. Then it's, uh, I think it was Bissouma who was normally the, the, the central midfielder with the fullbacks moving alongside him very sort of centrally. So there's your two, three, and that allows you to have five wide up top with the wingers staying wide. But because the fullbacks have moved inside, you basically create those passing lanes yeah. out wide. And that worked, and it was causing problems. And I think Brentford were really having difficulty identifying how to cut out those passes, but also how to make sure that you didn't then get carved open in the middle. The problem would be that when they did figure that out and did pounce on it, suddenly it was oftentimes like a 4v2 in, in the uh, the counterattack. And, and that is one where I think Spurs will either have to be a little bit better with their uh, ball retention and the possession they have. There was a moment in the second half when I think they had like 86% possession for the first 15 minutes, which tells me that they did figure it out a bit. Or maybe Brentford were just being a little more passive. But I thought there were in this game signs of what's to come for Tottenham. And I think also for Tottenham fans who are going to be sad by Harry Kane's departure, some positive things as well in terms of this squad getting figured out. I thought Mickey Van de Ven, again, didn't stand out in a, in a bad way, which I think is what you want when it comes to a center back. I thought uh, Destiny Udogi, I think is how you're, you were, some, were meant to pronounce that. I'd only been pronouncing it the way they do on FIFA, which I guess is incorrect. Uh, but he, I thought, w was really sharp, very uh, speedy on the left, but then also uh, very quick to get back, which is certainly important when you have a fullback defending but understood his role really well and I thought was a pretty uh, fun player to keep an eye on. And then uh, with Emerson Royale on the other side, uh, some mistakes from Emerson Royale, but I think overall uh, I liked what I saw from both of them. Uh, I thought the the lateral numbers, the way like Spurs would put every single player on one half of the pitch when they were in possession and just fully crowd the numbers was, was something that I wasn't really expecting or wasn't as familiar with. So I thought there were lots of interesting things from Tottenham that they can build on. Uh, even if the result did not necessarily go the way they would have hoped it would have. Yeah, so first of all, Taylor, the, the inverted fullbacks, the central fullbacks is absolutely a hallmark of, of Angeball for Celtic. Uh, Greg, Greg Taylor in particular thrived in that role coming centrally. And if you look at where Emerson Royale scores from in this game, there's just no way he's in that part of the pitch under Conte or Jose yeah. Mourinho or really any other manager that he's he's played under. So that is certainly a feature of uh, Postcog's Postcog was playing. We'll we'll see more of that from Spurs this season. It is high risk football, right? So yes. there, this is not a team without weaknesses. That 
doesn't exist in soccer. But I think back to the Celtic game against Real Madrid in the Champions League last season, where Celtic really imposed themselves on Real Madrid in, in the first half. Then Real Madrid figured out where the space was and how you could create those four-on-two moments that you were talking about. There, Taylor, and obviously Real Madrid have players like Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr. to make the most of those situations, and they can convincingly beat Celtic in the second half. I do worry that Tottenham will face a number of those moments this season as they still as they figure things out under under Postecoglou, and I don't know how good they are going to be this season, but they are they are going to be fun. They're they're certainly more fun to watch already than we've seen in the last few seasons. Um, we saw that in this in this match. They were so much higher up the up the pitch. They pressed from the front. That press was often led by James Madison, who already feels like the new attacking hub of this team. Notable that he has already taken Harry Kane's number 10 mm-hmm. shirt. I think it was still warm when it was handed over to him. He is uh, Tottenham's new number 10. Match the day had a, had a good graphic that showed the average position of players in the last game under Conte and comparing it to this match, the first one under Postcoglu, of course, the difference was incredible. So in, instead of five players in their own half, it was just two players. Oliver Skip, who plays both games, was 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 a full like twenty yards higher, and the same went for Son in the way that he played in this in in this uh, Tottenham team. So as I say, it is high risk football. It's about imposing yourself in the game in and out of possession. It's quick. It's passes around the corner. It's the corners. It's, it's lots of combinations. Um, everything about this performance was was kind of new for Spurs, including things like this being the youngest Spurs team for a Premier League game in three and a half years. There were four new debutants. I agree, Taylor. I thought Van de Ven. I thought he was better than okay, I thought he was good in this game. It was a bit like watching Jan Vertonghen again with the way that he was very comfortable in the ball and playing out and carries it forward from center, central defence, but also has kind of good physicality. I think he looks like a, a good signing, even if it's early days. So yeah, I'm genuinely excited to see where Spurs go from here. And I know it's the first day of the season and they don't even win this game, right? They get they get a point. They draw in this game. They drop points. But I thought there were some encouraging signs. Uh, Graham, your thoughts on Julielmo Vicario, the new goalkeeper. For Spurs fans who were maybe tired of Ugo Lloris on and off the pitch and some of his erratic performances, Vicario, I feel like he's going to continue that trend a little bit. Uh, he seems to be very good with his feet, but also I think at times just passed the ball straight out of bounds when he was a little bit concerned about the pressure, comes off of his line a lot, and sometimes that felt like the right decision and sometimes it felt like the wrong decision. What did you make of his Premier League debut? Yeah, it was obviously a, a mixed bag from Vicario. Not a player that I have to say I'm I'm terribly familiar with. He played with uh, Empoli last season in, in Serie A. I mean, I must have watched Empoli at some point last season in the game against one of the bigger teams, but he, he didn't catch my eye as a standout. So I'm really coming to this fresh with new impressions of him. But I'm not surprised that Postcoglu has demanded mm. a goalkeeper like him. He does want a goalkeeper to be comfortable on the ball, but... Let's not forget his goalkeeper at Celtic was Joe Hart, and Joe Hart was kicked out of Man City oh, for yeah. being poor in the ball. What Postcoglu wants more than a goalkeeper who is good in the ball is a goalkeeper whose starting position is quite high up the pitch. That's what, at least at Celtic, that's what he he huh. looked for, and I think that's what Vicario has been brought in to do. I don't know how good he is on the ball. As I say, I, ha- I don't have much experience of watching him really beyond this match. So I'll, much like a lot of the Spurs signings, like, Van de Ven and and uh, the Argentinian striker that they brought in Vicario is a player that I'm 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 new to and I'm looking forward to seeing how he fits in. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, two other little moments for me that I wanted to mention. Uh, credit to Matthias Jensen who 
was fouled uh, and the uh, the foul not given. But then we go to VAR and we get the penalty. Uh, but he very angry that the call wasn't given right away. Uh, and and Spurs go and attack down the other way. Uh, when Jensen then gets the ball back, he just immediately turns and kicks it straight out of bounds and then points at VAR to the center official. And I really just enjoyed the, like, go over there and do what you're supposed to do. And he was correct. It was indeed a penalty, and it was given. I liked that one a lot. And I also thought it was a, like, it was the correct decision from Ange Postacoglu to take out Christian Romero. Uh, I'm assuming. I'm assuming that was the medical team saying he has the the, the collision uh, early on in the game. Then he scores, and there's the VAR review to make sure that he's on side because James Madison is maybe shooting with how hard he hit that cross. But either way, it's a great cross. It's a great headed goal for Romero. And uh, according to what they said in the broadcast, as they're doing the VAR review, they're already making the the sort of uh, swap there. They're trying to make that change because they have concerns about Romero and his head injury. I don't know then why he was allowed back into play if the concerns were that strong or if the doctor maybe saw something else that we didn't see. But uh, there there was a moment when Romero did not want to be substituted. You could see him saying like, no, 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 it's fine. Hold on, hold on. Like, just give me some more time. Give me some more time. And then we cut to Postacoglu, who's just like, nope, come on over. And it was very much a like dad telling kids it was time to be done playing. But when Romero, who is a very feisty player, comes over, you, there was a, that could have gone really poorly, is I guess what I'm getting at. Like It could have been the Mohamed Salah thing, where he's ripping off the tape and is really frustrated, and there's this public spat that is the way this team starts their campaign. And instead, it was a very kind gesture. Postacoglu holds him. You can see there's he, he says some things into his ear, and, and Romero then sits on the bench, doesn't look angry, doesn't look furious that he's been substituted and it was the correct decision from a head injury standpoint but I think also the way Postacoglu handled that whole situation and how kind of confusing chaotic it was I think also made me optimistic about him uh, as a like non-footballing thing it just feels like a a person who has a a good head on their shoulders managing a club who have seen some turmoil uh, in the managerial position of late. Uh, Luton's first game back in the top flight for 31 years ended in a big defeat at Brighton. A 4-1 win for Brighton, that one was. Luton won a penalty in the 80th minute to make it a little bit interesting at the end, but then Brighton piled on a couple more goals. Uh, Sheffield United nil, Palace won. Life after Wilf Zaha begins with three points for Palace. Sheffield United don't seem to be in a good way, as we mentioned before this weekend. They sold basically their two best players uh, before the season started. Paul Heckingbottom, their manager, a quote from him this weekend. We only had six lads starting who played the game that got us promoted so we've lost all the goals and assists from the top end of the pitch and how we look to win the ball back at the top end of the pitch not what you want your manager to be saying after the first game of the Premier League campaign oh uh, hecking bottom oh, <laughs> indeed wow. hecking bottom the um the highlight of this game of course 76 year old Roy Hodgson scuffling with the Sheffield United defender when the ball uh, comes over to him uh you wouldn't mess with Roy is what we took from that moment every part of that was like Roy Hodgson, okay. Scuffling. Hmm. Sheffield United, oh no. Defender, oh no. <laughs> like That doesn't seem like it's going to go well for Roy Hodgson at all. <laughs> well, I, I, I respect him even more than I did before, and I respected him a lot before that moment, Taylor. I'll say that much. Uh, one other game to note. Uh, top of the league, yeah. Newcastle United. A 5-1 oh, win over Aston Villa. Uh, I don't know, if Graham, if you saw the BBC Match of the Day coverage, but Alan Shearer was having a lovely old time. They're basically saying it's his greatest weekend ever. Newcastle, yeah. top of the league. <laughs> And also his Premier League goal scoring record very yeah. much intact due to Harry Kane's departure from the league. Did anyone see his tweet? Did anyone see the tweet of him? I assume he hadn't done it, but someone had photoshopped him as like a, a, a plane pilot. 
standing next to a plane and he tweeted come on harry it's time to go now <laughs> which is just fantastic yeah he had himself a, a a good week newcastle united were exceptional in this match when they play like this they are just a real force of nature that the running the the pace of their play the noise inside st james's park as well it's just all so potent when it comes together like it did here. On on paper, this looked like a good matchup between two upwardly mobile teams with, with big ambitions. We spoke last week on the Patreon about how we thought Villa have had a, a, a good transfer window and they were competitive for a lot of the first half. The first 30 minutes were, were really intense and, and Villa did carry a real threat on the break and they were level at one all after, after Diaby's equaliser. But it was almost like Villa were just worn down by the energy coming at them from Newcastle. The changes that Howe made in the second half, I thought, just re-energised Newcastle as well at key key moments. Harvey Barnes in particular was impressive. I think Barnes is going to be a really important player for Newcastle this season. I know I know, Alan San Maxman had that X factor and, and trickery, but I personally think Barnes is a big upgrade on him, certainly in terms of consistency and actual output. I can't remember the numbers, but for relegated Leicester City Bar- last season, Barnes got something like 12 or 13 goals. He was their only regular source of, of, of goals. And I think once you get him into that channel with space, as Newcastle did for his goal, He's, he's such an excellent finisher. So that finish described as a Thierry Henry finish, which I think did a, a good job of describing how, how he, how he uh, converted that chance. There should be plenty of moments for Barnes like that, the way that Newcastle plays. So I like that signing a lot. And there was certainly plenty to like about this performance from Newcastle as a whole. It, it was it was wild. Um, from the jump, the atmosphere is, is truly nuts. Graham, you mentioned it there. I cannot wait for this team to play in the Champions League. I feel like it's going to be ratcheted up to 11. Uh, and I and I do feel like that goes a long way towards energizing the, this Newcastle team, who then every time there was an opportunity, were picking up the crowd. Uh, and I, and I liked that sort of uh, cyclical relationship. It worked very well. So too did most of what Newcastle were doing in this game. Uh, it was a game that, in the same way that I came away from the Chelsea game thinking Enzo Fernandez is is a very good player, and I understand now if I didn't already why they spent the money to get him. Bruno Guimaraes is incredible at what he does for this Newcastle team. He can arrive late and get shots himself, but he can spring attacks. He can hit long balls into the channels or even just vertically uh, that, that I think can be difference makers. But then he can just recycle possession and retains the ball, but has moments of trickery and moments of skill and then gets stuck into challenges and will be physical on the defensive side. I think he is so important for this team. And, and I think future teams have to kind of sit on him or sit two players on him, because if you don't, he is going to utilize that time to find open passes and especially to trigger uh, counterattacks. So I thought he was excellent. I thought Joel Linton and Sandro Tonali partnering him uh, had some really strong performances. I forget which goal it was because there were so many, but uh, there's the one where it's, it's uh, Callum Wilson's goal, the fourth goal, where it's Tonali to Gamarish to Joe Linton to Tonali to Barnes to Wilson for the goal. It is eight touches uh, from the time Tonali passes the ball backwards uh, to the ball on the back of the net. Uh, so eight touches between like five players, one of them twice, and they just pass their way through. They they knew how to play. They knew what the other was going to do. They knew when to time their runs. It, it was just a team that looked fully in sync. And Villa, I don't think, even looked that poor. I thought at times they looked like like the Villa team we were expecting. It just felt like maybe they were still in slight preseason mode and Newcastle were in prime ready to go for the Champions League mode. Uh, I... I I fully expect Joe or someone to pour a little bit of cold water on this because I'm already like Newcastle top four for sure. They're going to do amazing things. But I think there's just so much talent in this team. And then Alexander Isak scoring a brace. That's not a bad way to start the season either. 
not bad at all. Uh, I enjoyed Sandra Denali's chant, by the way. He drinks Moretti, eats spaghetti, and hates Sunderland. They've got it going. Oh, that's good. For that's him. good. I love Sandra Tonelli, and I love that his finish in this game. You know how the Bundesliga and the NBA have their logos are like action silhouettes? If the Premier League was to adopt one of those logos, I want it to be the Sandra Tonali finish for his goal in this game where he like comes flying in on the volley. Yeah, I, I just really like Sandra, Sandra Tonali. And I'm going to sound like a real... Old, like proper football man here but at like watching the Chelsea Liverpool game where you've got Cody Gakpo and like Alexis McAllister playing in central midfield and you've got Kai Havertz playing in central midfield for for Arsenal that that Newcastle midfield of Gomares and Tonali is like ah proper midfielders like proper central midfielders as they're meant to be I told you it was going to be a proper football man opinion. Who, who also, I mean, I like it and I agree with it because they also, like, if you kick Newcastle, they will kick you back. And they, and they are a team that are not uh, going to shy away from from the physicality of the game. I really enjoyed for the, the second Newcastle goal. Uh, it's from the free kick. And uh, I think it ends up being Matty Cash who keeps everybody on side. Uh, and watching it back from a couple a couple different angles, Dan Byrne just holds Matty Cash. Like, it's it's a pick, it's a screen, whatever it is. But he sort of holds him and maybe gives him a little bit of a pull backwards that I think that's what keeps everybody on. And then Dan Byrne not involved in the play. He just sort of casually walks out like uh, Kaiser Sose style. Uh, and I, I like the way he sort of maybe kept his entire team on side by throwing Matty Cash backwards, but then also walked out of frame so that he wasn't involved in any sort of replay. Uh, so there's a physicality and a, a practicality to this Newcastle team, but then there is also that attacking flair as well that I think makes them a, a pretty well-rounded team, at least through one game in the season. A uh, quick break when we come back. Uh, a La Liga action, German Super Cup, Leagues Cup, and much more. Back shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Shopify, who would like to remind you that not everyone can be Erling Holland or Harry Kane. I would say only Erling Holland and Harry Kane can be Erling Holland and Harry Kane. But more to the point, not everyone can score the number of goals that those two score. Not everyone can set the goal-scoring record. Sometimes you've got to be the teammates. Sometimes you've got to be the assists uh, person. You've got to be Kieran Trippier or Kevin DeBarna. You've got to spread the ball around. You've got to help facilitate that attacking play and those goals to help get the results you want. Because you need that perfect teammate. And when you need a perfect teammate when it comes to growing your business, Shopify has you covered. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. That feels like a good stage to be at. Shopify is there to help you grow along the way. How do they do that? Well, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. You can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So you don't have somebody kind of following you around the online store just saying, can I help you, can I help you, can I help you? Nobody needs that in real life or online, but Shopify's AI gets the job done. And that is a very unique aspect of Shopify that no matter how big your business is, and that's something I really appreciate, you can be a, a podcast just starting up, a podcast that's been here for a while, or a business that actually makes money. Either way, uh, Shopify is going to help you because that's what they are all about. Sign up for just $1 per month uh, trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Uh, one more time, go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash TSS.
This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. We go now, Graham, to La Liga, which has a new logo, and it's bad, in my opinion. Two L shapes, which are kind of in the shape of a four. Me no likey, Graham. Me no likey. I'm not a fan either, and it's such a shame because the old La Liga symbol, logo, whatever you want to call it, was so iconic. The kind of multicolored circle. It was great. So, yeah, I agree on that. Indeed. They've downgraded there, but Real Madrid upgraded with Jude Bellingham. Uh, they got a 2-0 win at Athletic Bilbao this weekend. Rodrigo with the other goal, Bellingham with a goal as well. He's the first English player to score in a competitive game for Real since David Beckham in 2007, Graham. Yeah, Bellingham is a, Bellingham's a superstar. He was the best player on the pitch in this game. The Spanish media are already calling him the boss uh, and the least oh, English awesome. Englishman to have ever played for Real Madrid, which is obviously a compliment. Uh, Dermot Corrigan, who writes for The Athletic, put it well in a tweet where he said, Bellingham looks like he's enjoying playing with players on his level. And that was absolutely the sense I got watching Real Madrid in this game. He's sensational. It's exciting that he's been giving the freedom to given the freedom to, to get forward in this team as well. As a whole, I thought this was very impressive by Real Madrid. This is a challenging opening fixture to go away to, to Athletic Club, a Valverde Athletic Club team. This was one of the matches I was really looking forward to this weekend. I asked the barman at the wedding I was at to put it on the TV, so I was able to watch it, and I was Never glad changed, about that. <laughs> I won't, Joe. Don't worry, I won't. It was a super inter- interesting game, and I think Real Madrid are generally going to be super interesting as a team this season even if last week was a bit of a bad one for them um Courtois Militao out for the season with ACL injuries picked up last week they've signed Kepa from Chelsea as a replacement I expect they'll move for a central defender as well of course Benzema is also gone they haven't really replaced him though and that's the thing that makes Real Madrid really interesting so they 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 started in this match with a front two of Vinicius and Rodrigo and primarily Bellingham as the supply line uh, in transition 
it was so exciting to watch. And it sort of reminded me of, and this is not a comparison I envisaged making a few weeks ago, but it sort of reminded me of the way that Haiti played against England at the Women's World Cup with Bellingham in the Dumourney role where he's the one driving the ball forward. And then he's got two runners ahead of him. Those two runners are Vinicius and Rodrigo in this case. And they just do such a good job of occupying the opposition defenders. They don't really know whether to split with them when they go wide or whether to close down Bellingham. It was a 4-2-3-1. Um, if you were to plot it on a, on, a, on, a, on a pitch, it worked really, really well in terms of closing up the lines between the defence and the midfield and then giving Madrid threat on the break. It could also... I'm going to pour some cold water on Real Madrid here because I've gone in pretty hot here. It could also be a sort of Bayern Munich situation where I remember really liking how Serge Gnabry and Sadio Mane were working as a front two after Lewandowski left last season and then slowly it became clear that there wasn't a real centre forward among them and they weren't taking the opportunities that previously they were. But nonetheless, a very encouraging and interesting start from Real Madrid in this game. Uh, not quite as rosy start for Barcelona. A nil-nil at Hatafe for them. Feisty one this was, Graham. Uh, Rafinha, Hatafe, <laughs> yeah, Shemata, <laughs> and uh, Xavi getting sent off in this one. Uh, Barcelona, uh, it's a bit of a, a bogey stadium for them. They haven't won for four years at Hatafe yeah. now. Uh, Xavi with a message that said, the message I would send today to Javier Tebas, uh, the, the, the boss of La Liga, is that his product is an embarrassment. Barcelona and Javier Tevas. What a love story that is. First of all, Ryan Bailey, I love that you're making Star Wars references now. Uh, what a world this is. Yeah, you're right. This was an absolute scrap of a match. Two sendings off, um, just so many flying tackles, flying elbows, VR reviews, a lot of disjointed play, and a total of 25 minutes of stoppage time between the two halves, <laughs> uh, which tells you everything you need to know about this game. Of course, that's the way that Bordelas wants it for Hitafi. That's how they were so successful in his first spell as manager but it was also a performance that made clear Barcelona haven't played a competitive game in a while it was very very ragged very little fluidity some strange decisions including a bizarre moment where a pass was played out to Ronald Araujo who starts this game on the right side the ball's going over his head he thinks he's out of play right so he just puts up his hands and full-on catches the ball then turns around and realises he's nowhere even close to the line. He's like eight or ten yards away from the line. Like, just a really, really bizarre moment. And that kind of summed up how Barcelona played. Um, they're, they're kind of a strange team at the moment. Last season was obviously much better, and I thought this summer would be one of refinement, where they change a couple of things and maybe bring in two or three starters, um, having given themselves that platform. But it's back to feeling like they're sort of throwing things at the wall again to see if anything sticks. So Dembele has been sold to PSG. Rafinha is back in the team despite Barca trying to sell him all summer. Oriol Romeo, who was very good for Girona last season, but nonetheless, he's been brought in and is now apparently the replacement for Sergio Busquets, which is a, is a strange one. He played in the double pivot alongside De Jong in this game. And, and players like Eze Abde are back in the picture as well. So it does feel a bit like when Xavi came in, and was trying loads of different things to see if anything worked. And maybe things will solidify quickly. It feels like Yao Cancelo's maybe on his way to Barcelona, which I think would be a, generally a good signing. And as you say, Ryan, the Coliseum is historically a difficult place for them to visit. But watching this, it really felt like a team not sure of each other on the pitch and not really sure of what their purpose is at this moment. I have one quick question. I'm still confused by the frustration with Javier Tebas was there something about this game was it the injury time was it just the general 
like anger between the two? Was that Xavi trying to distract from drawing nil nil for their opener? I, I don't I saw that it's one of those moments where I saw that headline and was like, I'm sure someone will explain that on the show. So now I'm um, hoping that somebody knows more than I. If I'm not mistaken, it's that um the league hasn't changed the rules enough for Barcelona this season yet. Is that it, Graham? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think he he had a grievance with the Rafinha sending off, ah. which was hundred percent a sending yeah. off. He turns around and basically elbows I can't remember which uh, Taffy player it is, but elbows the opposition defender like straight in the face. It was a clear red card. Oh dear, oh dear. Uh, interesting times there for Barcelona. Joe, if you will, a quick note on the German Super Cup where Bayern Munich uh, suffered a 3-0 loss to Erby Leipzig. Uh, good day for Dani Olmo. Got the hat-trick in this one. The second goal, very stylish. A lovely twist through defence uh, before a nutmeg on the keeper. Um, I like Thomas Tuchel's quote after the game, Joe, which was um, he said, it's a big problem because it feels like we've done nothing in the past four weeks. I just feel sorry for Kane. He probably thinks we haven't trained for four weeks. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It kind of felt like that a bit from Bayern Munich in this game. I said earlier, it seems like this team has lost some of the shine that we usually associate with Bayern Munich. They still won the league last year, but they did not do it in convincing fashion. And they were in this game, but they weren't ever really on the front foot, at least after giving up that opening goal. It felt like they were always going to have to claw their way back into this game. Ryan, you mentioned Danny Olmo with a hat trick. This was a fun kind of new look RB Leipzig team, a couple of players in particular that I want to spotlight. Uh, Luis Openda, as this number nine, he was starting next to Timo Werner. Openda was one of the best strikers in Liga last year, plays uh, for, for Belgium at the national level. He was a very, very good player, um, extremely promising as well, still just 23 years old. And then Xavi Simmons, playing as sort of like a, a number 10 half space kind of player, opposite of Danny Olmo, in a, a pretty fluid shape, but at times it looked like a 4 triple 2 under Marco Rosa. Simmons is a, is a super fun player, and it looks like, uh, in terms of role, we'll see what this actually turns out to be, but for USMNT fans, Malik Tillman has now gone to PSV, in case that's fallen under the radar, and he is has been touted as the Shabby Simmons replacement. So we'll see what happens there with PSV, but it was fun to see these different players in the team for RB Leipzig. Those both felt like very RB Leipzig additions, and on the whole, with Danny Olmo finishing attacks off, scoring one of the best goals you will ever see. I mentioned that kind of like little flick off the inside of the foot, and then the back heel. He carves right through Bayern Munich's defense. I believe it's for that second goal, carving right past, I think it's Matthias De Ligt in that moment. It's such a good goal. Look it up. I've been watching it on repeat on Twitter, and it, it just gets better every time you watch it. Bayern Munich, not so much, right? They, they did not seem to really grow into this game. And Harry Kane doesn't start, and I think he raises their ceiling by a significant margin. This team is still very good, and they will get better as the year goes on. But I'm not sure Tuchel's off base there. It didn't seem like this team has really transformed or really improved all that much from the end of last season, which was a disappointment, now to the start of a new one. Uh, built the German tabloid uh, with some comment on Harry Kane's arrival, by the way. Why have we not managed for years to develop our own talented centre forwards, of which we used to have a constant supply? And why are we not drawing on our own younger players, especially as the English are way beyond us financially? A few of the Kane millions would probably have been better put to use for youth training yeah the, the the reaction in germany has not been entirely positive no. a lot of um journalists and newspapers as well calling them like overpriced and overhyped which i just think there are a lot of players you could probably say that about harry kane is not one of them and like chelsea have just paid 115 million pounds for a guy who's played one premier league season 100 million <laughs> euros for harry kane is 
pretty decent business, if you ask me. I may be totally wrong. I often am. Uh, that, to me, just feels like people being annoyed that Bayern Munich have just won the title. Because I feel like if you put Harry, like, to Joe's initial point, like, Harry Kane is the Robert Lewandowski replacement. He's going to do those things, some of them maybe even better. And so I think they are going to win plenty of games, scoring plenty of goals with him starting. And it feels to me partially like this is a frustration that Bayern are going to likely win the league again, at least in my opinion, but also that in some ways I think this is a statement that Bayern remain Bayern, and they are the only Bundesliga team that I think could have gotten Harry Kane, had the financial resources, but also the allure, I think, to bring Harry Kane in. And I think in that way, it's a smart signing to show they are still the giant that we know them to be. It's shades of when they were in a down period many years ago, and they bring in Robin and Ribery in the same transfer window. And that felt, again, like, don't forget, we're very good, and we will be a juggernaut once again. Uh, not that they have really fallen off the way they had previously, but to me, this is a, a statement signing in a number of different ways. Yeah. And I'm not so surprised that the reaction from the national journalists has been, oh, this is kind of a bummer. I think that frustration with Bayern is, is an angle here. I also think maybe even a bigger angle is the fact that everybody's realizing how far behind they are behind the Premier League, right? The mm -hmm. Bundesliga at, at this point, and, and this is reflected, frankly, like in how we, we sort of talk about different games and, and the national conversations, the international conversations, like for, for Germany and for the Bundesliga and for Bayern Munich as the leading club in the Bundesliga in Germany, to have to go out and splash this much money and, and to make their statement signing be an English striker, like, I think there is a greater conversation about the shifting soccer landscape and about the different roles and levels that these leagues occupy within that landscape because it's inarguable, and Germany knows this, and you kind of get that undercurrent throughout that quote, like that they're all chasing. like They're all behind in fighting for second place rather than first. Indeed. Uh, we go to Liga now, where Paris Saint-Germain had a nil-nil draw with Lorient to kick off their campaign. No Kylian Mbappé in the squad for this one. He was smiling and smirking in the stands, according to the photos I saw on social media, while his uh, situation is sorted out. 78% possession for PSG. 1,001 passes. Zero goals. Luis Enrique is PSG. Four figures. Yeah. yeah. Enrique Ball. He Wonderful. was delighted. <laughs> Welcome to Lucho Ball uh, Paris. Indeed, Graham. Uh, Joe, if you will, a quick note on the League's Cup and uh, the Leo Messi Cup, I guess we call it now. Eight goals in five League's Cup games. Now the latest, the fourth goal in a 4-0 win over <coughs> Charlotte FC. Uh, the semi-finals on Tuesday, Monterey taking on Nashville and the Union taking on Inter Miami. The final on Saturday. I'll, I'll do my best pitch for League's Cup, not that I feel the need to. I was skeptical about this coming in, and it's been genuinely fantastic entertainment. So if you're looking for some soccer to watch on Tuesday night, this is the taste of the quarterfinal chaos. Uh, there was a 100-minute winner, uh, that was second-half stoppage time, from Philadelphia Union's Chris Donovan to get them past Carretero. There was a three-goal comeback from Monterey in the last 22 minutes against LAFC. Nashville SC scored five goals in 20 minutes to blank Minnesota United 5-0. And Messi scored uh, the last goal to cap off that 4-0 win for Inter-Miami. It's been chaos after chaos. It's been ridiculous moment after ridiculous moment. I, I've i got Miami and Monterey meeting in the finals, but Philadelphia could be the, the team and really are the team best suited to take down Inter-Miami of any of the five they've played so far. Philadelphia will be the sixth in this new era for Inter-Miami. And then Nashville could be kind of the bogey to Monterey, who I think will still win. They've got the talent advantage by a pretty wide margin there, but I'm not sure it's a great stylistic matchup for them. But this tournament has been genuinely far better than I thought it would be, and I'm really looking forward to these couple of games tomorrow. 
Yes, indeed. Oh, speaking, Joe, interestingly, to a person who works for a company that literally sets the prices for bookmakers. So hmm. they sort of, they decide who, who's odds on and whatnot. And he was saying, basically, Miami are favourites in every game they play now. Yeah. They're bought in on this thing. So it's, it's very interesting how much that one, you don't get, often get one player transforming a team or even a league, yeah. League's Cup. Quite well, as much as and that. it's 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 not just Messi, although it, it is it is Messi, but it's not just Messi, right? It's Sergio sure. Busquets. So I think it's is I, I actually I was gonna say maybe more impactful. I'm gonna take that back because it's not true. But he is he is <laughs> he is still subtly impactful, right? If you shut off yeah. the supply line to Busquets, things do become a lot more difficult for Inter Miami. It's Jordi Alba, and then it's the young infusion of South American talent, Diego Gomez in midfield, who I think is still super raw, but gives them another competent player in that space. They're about to get healthier with Gregory and, and Mota coming back in as well, I think, over the next month or, or six weeks or so. I don't know exactly what the timeline is there. But this team's legit. Like, they are probably the best team we've ever seen playing Major League Soccer. And I, I know we've had plenty of other things going on in the soccer world, Women's World Cup namely, and we'll have more of those shows coming tomorrow and, and later this week. Like, they have been so much fun to watch. They're not great at everything, but they're great at a ton of stuff, and they're really bad at the other stuff. And it's every bit as fun as we thought it could be. Uh, it's been good TV. It has indeed, and it shall continue. Uh, MLS play league play returns on Sunday night. By the way, uh, over in uh, Asia, uh, Ronaldo has won the Arab Arab Club Champions Cup. Uh, Ronaldo has won the Arab Club Champions Cup. Looks up what the Arab Club Champions Cup. Yeah, is. so that's not even that's not even the AFC Champions League. Correct. Right? Yeah, that's something else. It is the thirtieth edition of this particular tournament, Graham. It features teams from Asia and Africa who are out of Arabic uh, nature. Al Nassr winning two one over Al Hilal in the final here. The ninety eighth minute winner coming for Ronaldo, pretty much heading in a deflection into an empty net. Yay, yay, yay! Uh, he's been the top scorer in the competition with six goals. The <laughs> second top scorer, Graham, Karim Benzema, with three goals right. in that tournament. Um, his team Itihad Jeddah were eliminated in the quarterfinals. Does does this competition have a history, or is this like the equivalent of? Do you remember when Cristiano Ronaldo created his own awards ceremony so that he got the award? Like, mm. is the alternative title for this tournament the Cristiano Ronaldo Invitational? Give me a trophy, Super League. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what? I do not remember that. <laughs> Do you remember Ronaldo created? Uh, if you give me time to Google this, I'll find it. He created his own award ceremony so that he would win best player in the world every year. Okay. And I can't remember what it's called. Hold on. Well, while a man Googles something, I'll tell you about one other bit of news. Uh, Roberto Mancini has resigned as Italy's head coach after two years, or two years after his um, his Euro 2020 final great robbery that he pulled off. Italy are next in action in September when they take on North Macedonia and Ukraine in Euro 2024 qualifying matches. Graham, have you Googled? I can't still typing. It. Hold on. No, you can't find, find it. it. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't exist. Either way, uh, the Arab Club Champions Cup. A- uh, a tournament of rich heritage, I am quite sure, Graham. A uh, couple other things. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you want to join us for bonus content. I went to see AFC Wimbledon take on Wrexham over the weekend. Did a nice little video there. And also, listener, if you want to join our Premier League Fantasy League, uh, you can join the TSS League with the code LBLXUH. We will put that in the show notes if you want to join and watch us gradually not set our lineups as we keep forgetting to do it Correct. as the season progresses. But uh, an active one. It is all the same, the TSS League. Uh, that's just about it for the weekend review. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much. Unless you have any parting words about Ronaldo and made-up awards. The Globe Soccer Awards. 
created by Cristiano Ronaldo and Jorge Mendes. There are two main awards, Player of the Year, which Ronaldo has won every single year, and Best Agent of the Year, which Jorge Mendes has won somewhat peculiarly uh, eight times in the last ten years. Mino Raiola won it in 2016, so he was oh. a bit more generous than Ronaldo handing out the awards. But yes, he created his own award ceremony. Was that, was that that's just the year? kind of guy he is. Was that Firmino a Pogba transfer year, possibly? A, a big win for Yeah, it was actually. Yeah, Mine in 2016, yeah. Real, real, uh, yeah, that's why he gets it. Joe Lowry, thank you very much for weekend reviewing, my good man. Thank you, Ryan. And Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always, sir. Pleasure was mine, my friend. Listener, the pleasure was mostest for usest. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye! As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.